Hardy Boys Mystery Stories, The Tower Treasure, by Franklin W. Dixon, the first in the series. Chapter 1, The Speed Demon. After the help we gave Dad on that forgery case, I guess he'll begin to think we could be detectives when we grow up. Why shouldn't we? Isn't he one of the most famous detectives in the country? And aren't we his sons? If the profession was good enough for him to follow, it should be good enough for us. Two bright-eyed boys on motorcycles were speeding along a shore road in sunshine of the morning in spring. It was Saturday, and they were enjoying a holiday from the Bayport High School. The day was ideal for a motorcycle trip, and the lads were combining business with pleasure by going on an errand to a nearby village for their father. The older of the two boys was a tall, dark youth about 16 years of age. His name was Frank Hardy. The other boy, his companion on the motorcycle trip, was his brother Joe, a year younger. While there was a certain resemblance between the two lads, chiefly in the firm yet good-humored expression of their mouths, in some respects they differed greatly in appearance. While Frank was dark with straight black hair and brown eyes, his brother was pink-cheeked with fair curly hair and blue eyes. These were the Hardy boys, sons of Fenton Hardy, an internationally famous detective who had made a name for himself in the years he had spent in the New York police force, who was now, at the age of forty, handling his own practice. The Hardy family lived in Bayport, a city of about 50,000 inhabitants located in Burmount Bay, three miles in from Atlantic, and there the boys attended high school and dreamed of the day when they, too, should be detectives like their father. As they sped along the narrow shore road, with the waves breaking on the rocks far below, they discussed their chances of winning over their parents to argument with their ambition to follow in their father's footsteps. Like most boys, they speculated frequently on the occupation they should follow when they grew up, and it had always seemed to them that nothing offended so many possibilities of adventure and excitement as the career of a detective. But whenever we mention it to Dad, he just laughs at us, said Joe Hardy. Tells us to wait until we're through school, and then we can think about being detectives. Well, at least he's more encouraging than Mother, remarked Frank. She comes out plump and plain and says she wants us to be doctors or lawyers. What a fine lawyer either of us would make, sniffed Joe, or a doctor either. We were both cut out of to be detectives, and Dad knows it. As I was saying, the help we gave him in that forgery case proves it. He didn't say much, but I bet he's been thinking a lot about it. Of course we didn't actually do very much in the case, Joe pointed out. But we suggested something that led to a clue, didn't we? That's as much a part of detective work as anything else. Dad himself admitted he would never have thought of examining the city tax receipts for that forged signature. It was just a lucky idea on our part, but it proved to him that we can use our heads for something more than to hang our hats on. Oh, I guess he's convinced, all right. Once we get out of school, he'll probably give his permission. Why, this is a good sign right now, isn't it? He asked us to deliver these papers for him to Willowville. He's letting us help him. I'd rather get on a real good mystery, said Frank. It's all right to help Dad, but if there's no more excitement in it than delivering papers, 
I'd rather start in studying to be a lawyer and be done with it. Never mind, Frank, comforted his brother. We may get a mystery all of our own to solve some day. If we do, we'll show that Fenton Hardy's sons are worthy of his name. Oh, boy, what wouldn't I give to be as famous as dad? Why, some of the biggest cases in the country are turned over to him. That forgery case, for instance, $50,000 had been stolen right from under the noses of the city officials, and all the auditors and the city detectives and private detectives, they called in and had to admit that it was too deep for them. Then they called in Dad, and he cleared it up in three days. Once he got suspicious of that slick bookkeeper, whom nobody had been suspecting at all, it was all over but the shouting. Got a confession out of him and everything. It was smooth work. I'm glad our suggestion helped him. The case certainly got a lot of attention in the paper. And here we are, said Joe, plugging along the shore road on a measly little errand to deliver some legal papers at Willowville. I'd rather be on the track of some diamond thieves or smugglers or something. Well, we have to satisfy ourselves, I suppose, replied Frank, leaning farther over the handlebars. Perhaps Dad may give us a chance on a real case sometime. Sometime? I don't want to be on a real case now. The motorcycles roared along the narrow road that skirted the bay. An embankment of tumbled rocks and boulders sloped steeply to the water below, and on the other side of the road was a steep cliff. The roadway itself was narrow, although it was wide enough to permit two cars to meet and pass, and it wound about in frequent curves and turnings. It was a road that was not often traveled, for Willowville was only a small village, and this shore road was an offshoot of the main highway to the north and to the west. The Hardy boys dropped their discussion of the probability that some day they would become detectives, and for a while they rode on in silence, occupied with the difficulties of keeping to the road. For the road on this point was dangerous, very rough and ruddy, and it sloped sharply upward so that the embankment leading to the ocean far below became steeper and steeper. I shouldn't want to go over the edge around here, remarked Frank, as he glanced down the rugged slope. It's a hundred foot drop. You'd be smashed to pieces before you ever hit the shore, I'll say. It's best to stay in close to the cliff. These curves are bad medicine. The motorcycles took the next curve neatly, and when the boys confronted a long, steep slope, the rocky cliffs frowned on one side, and in the embankment jutted far down to the tumbling waves below, so that the road was a mere ribbon before them. Once we get to the top of the hill, we'll be all right. It's all smooth sailing from there to Willowville, remarked Frank as the motorcycle commenced the climb. Just then, above the sharp put-put of their own motors, they heard the high-humming roar of an automobile approaching at great speed. The car was not yet in sight, but there was no mistaking the fact that it was cruising along with the cut-out open and with no regard for the speed laws. "'What idiot is driving like that on this kind of a road?' exclaimed Frank. They looked back. Even as he spoke, the automobile flashed into sight. It came round the curve behind so swiftly that the 
did the driver take the dangerous turn that two wheels were off the ground as the car shot into view. A cloud of dust and stones arose. The car veered violently from left to right, and then it roared at headlong speed down the slope. The boys glimpsed a tensed figure at the wheel. How he kept the car on the road was a miracle, for the racing automobile swung side to side. At one moment, it would be in imminent danger of crashing over the embankment down on the rocks below. The next instant, the car would be over on the other side of the road, grazing the cliff. He'll run us down, shouted Joe in alarm. Indeed, the position of the two lads was perilous. The roadway was narrow enough at any time, and this speeding car was taking up every inch of space. In a great cloud of dust, it bore directly down on the two motorcyclists. It seemed to leap through the air. The front wheels left a rut. The rear of the car skidded violently about. By a twist of the wheel, the driver pulled the car back into the roadway again, just as it seemed about to plunge over the embankment. It shot over the, towards the cliff, swerved back again into the middle of the roadway, and then shot ahead at terrific speed. Frank and Joe edged their motorcycles as far to the right as the road would allow. To their horror, they saw that the car was skidding again. The driver made no attempt to slacken speed. The automobile came hurtling towards them. Chapter 2 The Stolen Roadster the auto brakes squealed. The driver of the oncoming car swung the wheel violently about. For a moment, it appeared that the wheels would not respond. Then they gripped the gravel, and the automobile swerved, then shot past. Bits of sand and gravel were flung about the two boys as they crouched on their motorcycles at the edge of the embankment. The car had missed them only by inches. Frank caught a glimpse of the driver, who turned about at that moment, and in spite of the speed at which the automobile was traveling, and in spite of the perils of the road, shouted something they could not catch at them, and shook his fist. The car was traveling at too great a speed to enable the lad to distinguish the driver's features, but he saw that the man was hatless, and that he had a shock of red hair blowing in the wind. Then the automobile disappeared from sight around the curve ahead, roaring away in clouds of dust. Roadhog, gasped Joe, as soon as he had recovered from his surprise. He must be crazy, Frank exclaimed angrily. Why, he might have pushed us both right over the embankment. At the rate he was going, I don't think he cared whether he ran anyone down or not. Both boys were justifiably angry. On such a narrow, treacherous road, there was danger enough. When an automobile passed them traveling at, 11, at even a reasonable speed, but the reckless and insane driving of the red-headed motorist was nothing short of criminal. If we ever catch up to him, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind, declared Frank. Not content with almost running us down, he had to shake his fist at us. Roadhog, muttered Joe again. Jail is too good for the likes of him. If it was only his own life he endangered, it wouldn't be so bad. Good thing we only had motorcycles. If we had been in another car, there would have been a great smash-up for sure. The boys resumed their journey, and by the time they had reached the curve ahead that enabled them to see the village of Willowville laying in a little valley along the bay beneath them, there was no trace of the reckless motorist. Frank delivered the legal papers his father had given him, 
and then the boys had the rest of the day to themselves. It's too early to go back to Bayport just now, said Joe. What say we go out and visit Chet Morton? Good idea, agreed Joe. He has often asked us to come out and see him. Chet Morton was a school chum of the Hardy Boys. His father was a real estate dealer with an office in Bayport, but the family lived in the country about a mile from the city. Although Willowville was some distance away, the boys knew a road that would take them across the country to the Morton home, and from there they could return to Bayport. It would make their journey longer, but they would have the pleasure of visiting their chum. Chet was a great favorite with all the boys, not the least of the reason for his popularity popularity being the fact that he had a roadster of his own, and in which he drove to school every day, and with which he was very generous in giving rides to his friends after school hours. The Hardy Boys drove along the country road in spring sunlight, enjoying the freedom of their holiday as only boys can. When they had reached a curve not far from the Morton Place, Frank suddenly brought his motorcycle to a stop and peered down into the clumps of bushes in the deep ditch. "'Somebody's had a spill,' he remarked. Down in the bushes lay an upturned automobile. The car was a total wreck and lay bottom upright a mass of tangled junk. "'Must have been hitting an awful clip to clump up like that,' Joe commented. "'Perhaps there's someone underneath. Let's go see.' The boys left their motorcycles by the road and went down to the wrecked car, but there was no sign of either driver or passengers. If anyone was hurt there, it's been taken away by now. Probably the wreck is a day or so old, said Frank. Let's go. We can't do any good here. They left the wreckage and returned to the road again, resuming their journey. I thought at first it might be our red-headed speed fiend, said Frank. If it was, he was sure lucky to get out of it alive. The boys gave little further thought to the incident, and before long, they were inside of the Mortons' home, a big, home-like, rambling old farmhouse with an apple orchard at the rear. When the boys drove down the lane, they saw a figure waiting them at the barnyard gate. "'That's Chet,' said Frank. "'I'm glad we found him at home. I thought he might have gone out in his car.' "'It is strange,' said Joe, "'on a holiday like this that he doesn't usually stay around the farm.' As they approached, they saw Chet leave the gate and came down the lane to meet them. Chet was one of the most popular boys at the Bayport High School. One reason for this popularity being his unfailing good nature and his ability to see fun in almost everything. He was full of jokes and good humor and was rarely seen without a smile on his plump, freckled face. But today, the Hardy Boys saw that there was something wrong. Chet's face had an anxious expression as they brought their motorcycles to a stop. They saw that their chum's usually cheery face was clouded. "'What's the matter?' asked Frank, as their friend hastened up to them. "'You're just in time,' replied Chet hurriedly. "'You didn't meet a fellow driver driving a roadster, did you?' The brothers looked at each other blankly. "'Your roadster? We'd recognize it anywhere.' "'No, we didn't see it,' said Joe. "'What happened?' "'It's been stolen.' "'Stolen? "'A car thief stole it from the garage not half an hour ago. "'He just went in as cool as you please and made away with the car.' "'The hired man saw the roadster disappearing down the lane, "'but he supposed I was in it, so he didn't think anything of it. "'And then he saw me out in the yard a while later, "'so he got suspicious, and the roadster was gone.' "'Wasn't it locked?' 
That's the strange part of it. The car was locked, although the garage door was open. I can't see how he got away with it. A professional job, commented Frank. These auto thieves always carry scores of keys with them. But we're losing time here. The only thing to set out in pursuit to the notify the police. The hired man didn't see which way the fellow went, did he? No. There's only the one road, and we didn't meet him, so we must have taken the turning to the right at the end of the lane. We'll chase him, said Joe. Climb onto my bike, Chet. We'll get that thief yet. Wait a minute, said Frank suddenly. I have an idea. Joe, do you remember that car we saw wrecked in the bushes? Sure. Perhaps the driver stole the first automobile he could lay his hands on after the wreck. What wreck was that? asked Chet. The Hardy boys told him of the wrecked car they had found by the roadside. It had occurred to Frank that perhaps the smashed up might have occurred just a short while before, and that the driver of the wrecked car had resumed his interrupted journey in a stolen automobile. It sounds reasonable, said Chet. Let's go and take a look at that wreck. We can get the license number, and that may help us name the owner. The motorcycles roared as the three chums set out back along the road towards the place where the upturned automobile had been seen among the bushes. The boys lost no time in reaching that place, for they realized that every second was precious and that the longer they delayed, the greater was the advantage to the car thief. The car had not been disturbed, and apparently no one had been near it since the boys had discovered the wreck. They parked their motorcycles by the roadside and again went down into the bushes to examine the wrecked car. To their disappointment, the car bore no license plates. That looks suspicious, said Frank. It's more than suspicious, said Joe, who had withdrawn a little to one side and was examining the automobile from the rear. Don't you remember seeing this car before, Frank? It didn't occur to me until you mentioned the matter of license plates. I have been wondering if this isn't the same car that passed us on the shore road at the curve, replied Frank slowly. It is the same car. There's no doubt of it in my mind. It didn't have a license plate. I remember that at the time, for I wanted to get the fellow's number. And it was a touring car of the same make as this. You're right, Joe. There's no mistake. The red-headed driver came to grief in the ditch, just as we said he would. And then he went on to the nearest farmhouse, which happened to be Chet's place, and stole the first car he saw. The busted car was the one the fellow was running, who nearly sent us over the cliff, Joe declared, and it's ten chances to one that he'll follow who stole Chet's roadster, and he'll be the red-headed man. We have those clues, anyway. And he went on past our farmhouse instead of turning back the way he came, cried Chet. Come on, fellows, let's go get him. There was only a little bit of gas in the roadster anyway. Perhaps he's stalled by this time. Thrilled with the excitement of the chase, the boys clambered back into the motorcycles, and within a few moments, a cloud of dust rose from the road as the Hardy Boys and Chet Morton set out in swift pursuit of the red-headed automobile thief. Music